chapter number six today, and the title we are looking at for today's message is Everybody Matters. Um, when we look at the human body, and if we admire a human body, usually it's for some carnal reason, right? I mean, we look at the beauty, we look at muscular structure, we might look at the physique, we look at the looks, we look at some athletic ability, we might fall into lust and some of those things. But what if, what if when we looked at a human body, we would say, wow, just imagine how that body could serve the Lord. What if we thought about it that way? Uh, that's really where we're at in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, the last verse that we looked at last week was verse number 12, where it states, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And when we present the idea of Christian liberty like we did last week, and we talk about how God literally gives to us as born-again Christians in His body freedom. What happens is the carnal mind immediately wants to take that freedom and find out how far can we test it, how much sin can we be involved in and get away with it. That's the mindset that we frequently get. So the abuse of Christian liberty, well, it's all too common, isn't it? I mean, our flesh never stops trying to make us sin. But what we learned is, is that we're free from the bondage of sin. We're no longer required to obey sin. The freedom in Christ is the freedom to be able to serve the Lord now. Something that you could not possibly do before you were born again. And that's what we saw last time. Well, similarly to that, in this case, going from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, we're going to see that the same thing is true about our physical bodies. And so that's why I gave it the title, Every Body, Not Everybody, Every Body Matters, right? The word body appears eight times in these seven verses. And you might just be surprised as to what we're about to learn together from this passage of Scripture, if applied. If applied, I can guarantee you it'll help you in your everyday life. It will absolutely help you in your everyday life. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to jump in at verse 13, and we're going to read down to verse 20. 1 Corinthians 6. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
So let's just ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds and to teach us what he has for us today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you so much for giving us new life in Christ. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit, as you remind us here in verse 19. Thank you that he is given to be our guide. Thank you that as the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit can give us the proper understanding and, most importantly, the proper application. So my prayer, Lord Jesus, is that we look at this passage of Scripture and understand your plan for our human bodies and how we are to serve you, um, that you would clearly make it obvious for each and every one of us. Each of us has our own situation. Each of us have our own problems. Each of us have our own things we're dealing with. And Lord, speak to me. Show me from your word what you want me to do and how I can best respond to what you have for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, there'll be three main points that we'll look at, and the first of which is going to be the purpose of your body. And this is the first two verses, verses 13 and 14. Um, everybody knows that tools are made for various purposes, right? I mean, to do the specific job that they were designed to do. You don't hammer in a nail with a screwdriver. I mean, you, you use the specific tool for the specific job that it was made to do. My father um, was a mechanic, and when he would come home from work, I didn't get this gene from him, by the way, uh, when he would come home for work, he liked to tinker in the garage and, and build stuff and make stuff and fix stuff and break stuff so he could fix stuff. And he liked to do all that. My dad used to build tools that would, like he'd have one project and he didn't have a tool that fit it perfect. So he'd spend like two weeks making a tool that he would use for like a minute and a half. <laughs> then he would save it because, well, he's never using it again. But, you know, it was fun. It just emphasizes the idea that everything has a purpose. Everything has a specific usage. And so, similarly with the Lord and similarly with his creation, I mean, nothing happens just by chance, right? I mean, that's what people think about evolution. It's just chance over time. That's what they think it is. But we know better. We know that God is the ultimate intelligent designer of all of his creation, and most certainly, the crown of all of God's creation is man. It is man. There's no question about it. Therefore, it's no surprise that God has a specific designed purpose, not just for your life, for your bodies also. And so the first way we're going to look at that is this, that some things have a temporary purpose. Some things have a temporary purpose. Verse 13 starts out by saying, Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. So the meats and the belly, that's a, that's a temporary purpose. So, for example, let's just, let's just get our juices flowing a little bit and look at this photo. So aren't you all glad you came to church? I think we've got another one. Just in case that wasn't enough. We got another one? Oh, yeah, look at that. I mean, we're coming up on 4th of July. I mean, you don't need to wait till 4th of July, but I mean. So meats have a purpose. Meats are for the belly. That's what they're for, right? And the next one, so for example, and then the belly <laughs> might overdo it. We'll go ahead and take that picture down. Is for meats. 
Um, I don't know how vegans work that out. That's their business. But God said the belly is for, God bless you if you do that. Okay, but I'm just saying, it's for meats. There's a purpose. Meats are for the belly, and the belly's for meats. Yeah, but you know what? All that's going to pass. I mean, it's not, it's temporary. The purpose of all that, you know what this is really? Meats are for the belly, and the belly are for meats. We'll get to it when we get to chapter number 8. It's an example of verse number 12 that all things are lawful unto me. And in chapter number 8, we'll see that it's lawful to to eat meat that was previously sacrificed to an idol. We'll take time and we'll get there when we get there. But that's, that's an example of something temporary. And the Lord uses that illustration to set up the rest of verse 13, that the body is not for fornication, duh, but for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. That's the purpose. Um, There is a philosophy that has been set forth that people historically have followed from time to time that would state that only the spiritual matters. The physical doesn't matter. Uh, I tried to research exactly who these people are, and I believe they would have been referred to as Gnostics and and a portion of the Gnostics would be the antinomians and they would be people who would have so downplayed the role of the body and only what spiritual matters is that it it catapulted them into some perverse sin in thinking that it's okay to do whatever you want with your body and you can be involved in all kind of sinful sexual behavior and it really doesn't matter because well that's just the flesh and the flesh is that, and really God just communes with the Spirit, and so there's this separation that they don't even touch, they don't have anything to do with one another, and well, maybe that's what the Corinthians were thinking, I don't know, when you go back to chapter number five and the first several verses, and we read back then about the ridiculously egregious sin that was taking place in the church, and somehow they just seemed to let it go. I don't understand really how all that plays out, but one thing I know is that philosophy that the body's just bad, so you do whatever you want, doesn't even really matter, well, that's just wrong. It does matter what you do with your bodies because the body's not for fornication. It is for the Lord. What you do with it should be in accordance with its specifically designed purpose. Amen? So, verse 12, your Christian liberty, in any case, is not given to you just so that you can sin as much as possible and get away with it. Your Christian liberty is given to you so that you can serve the Lord. And your physical body is similarly not given to you so that you can fulfill its lusts. Your body is given to you so that you can serve the Lord. That's why it is given to you. So your body, yes, this flesh, your body, is very important to God. So, it's fair to say we should take good care of it. We should take good care of it. Uh, everybody remembers 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 8 where it says, for bodily exercise profiteth little. Um, and we always want to emphasize the little, don't we? But before we get to little, it does profit. It does profit, does it not? Bodily exercise gives profit. Now, it's little in comparison to godliness profits more, right? That's the context of 1 Timothy chapter 4. So in comparison to godliness, okay, the physical is going to pass away one day. But it does profit. And there certainly is much more going on with our bodies than just how it interacts 
on a very superficial level, right? So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses this in verse 25, where he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, for uh, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body, in other words, more than just raiment or clothing? In other words, don't spend all your time, take no thought, could also be translated as seek not. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is the exact same word that's translated seek as it is here taking thought. So in other words, don't seek after the things that you can do for your body, right? Because the body is much more than that. And so we understand from 1 Corinthians 6, the body's for the Lord. You are to use your body as members for the Lord. And that's what it says. It says in verse number 20, to we're, we're, we're to use our bodies to glorify the Lord. Romans chapter 12 gives us the same idea in verse number 1, right? Where it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your souls, no, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You present your bodies. The Lord is looking for the members of your body to be given over to the Lord as a living, not dead, sacrifice so that the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, can all be used in service to the Lord. That's what he's looking for. That's only reasonable. That's not the life of an extremely spiritual Christian. That's the life of every Christian walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about it this way. The Lord gave you a physical body to house the real you, which is your soul, on the inside, looking out through the eye holes, right? He gave you your body to house the real you so that you can function in this world for him. Reaching out to other human beings in this world to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, I've often referred to it this way. Your body is your necessary earth suit. You have to have it so that you can function in this atmospheric environment. How about that? Right? Now you're going to get a new body eventually. Praise the Lord. We're going to get a new body, and that is, the, that is the, the suit that you will need. That is the housing that you will need to be able to serve God in eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of this. Verse 35, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So when the dead come back, you know, you, it's not night of the living dead and, and the zombie apocalypse. It's not that, right? It's they're going to have a new body. And so in verse 38, he goes on, it says, But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him. Well, that shouldn't surprise anybody. God's going to give the body that he thinks you ought to have, right? As it hath pleased him to every seed his own body. So, you know, what you get is yours and what I get is mine, but whatever it is, it is going to be for the pleasure of the Lord. Verse 44, it says, It is sown a natural body. That's what we have now. It's raised a spiritual body. That's what we'll have then. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. We'll get into 1 Corinthians 15 a couple years from now. I don't know, eventually. <laughs> but there is a temporal purpose for this physical body, this natural body, even now, right? 
And the next thing in your notes, some things have an eternal purpose. Well, the spiritual body is going to be the eternal application of that, but understand even the purposes that are eternal connected with the body that you're given even right now. You say, well, why is that? How does that exactly play out? Well, it's all about the resurrection, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You see, when we think about human life, we think about the fact that the body dies eventually, right? Everybody knows you live, you live so long, born, and then, and then you pass. But your spirit and soul, they live on, but the body, you know, the body's gone. Uh, the Bible says the body comes back. He's given us a new one, right? It's going to come back again. And I want you to see that because in verses 13 and 14 of where we're at in 1 Corinthians 6, it goes on and it says, And the Lord for the body. Okay, the body's for the Lord, but it also says that the Lord is for the body. The Lord is in this with you, with your body. I mean, he's trying to help you. How exactly does that work out? Well, it's the resurrection. God hath both raised up the Lord, Jesus, in other words, and will also raise up us by his own power. And I want you to notice a parallel in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 11 where it says, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you you know what that means that means that there is an eternal element to god's purpose for your body that you have today don't mistreat it as we'll see as we continue down in this passage there is an eternal purpose to that there is a natural law and it is the law of conservation of matter mass and basically it says that mass or matter can neither be created or destroyed it just changes form okay and this is a proven scientific law um, you're going to live forever christian in a glorified version of your body of your body now hopefully you know he helps us work the kinks out <laughs> i'm thinking we're on pretty solid ground there but you're going to live in a glorified version of your body. Isn't that what makes sense with the law of conservation of mass, would say? Uh, going a few verses down from Romans 8.11, go down to Romans 8.23, notice, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, save people, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. The body that we have is the body that will be redeemed and made to be eternal. See? Because your body has a God-given purpose. That means that what you do with your body, whom you serve with your body, with your members, it matters. It matters. Every body matters, right? But it goes deeper than that. And this is our second point today. The partnership of your body. The partnership, verses 15 to 18. It starts out, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. So notice, your bodies, plural. Each and every one of you. When he's talking about the body here, he's not talking about the body of Christ. We are all singularly the body of Christ. 
He said, each and every one of you, your bodies, plural, are the members, plural, of Christ. So this means that 1 Corinthians 6, unlike 1 Corinthians 3 that we saw earlier, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost here. Your body was the temple of the Holy Spirit there. There it was a corporate application for the body of the church. Here it's an individual application for you as an individual member of Christ. That means that your life, Christian, is literally an extension of the presence of Jesus Christ on the earth today. Do you believe that? That is your standing in Him. We saw that last week. That is who He has made you to be as a result of your salvation experience. He has made you to be one with Him. He has made you to be His hands and feet in this world today. And there is a key word that you need to see as we study this section. It is the word joined. Joined. Verse 16. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that that physical joining, right, makes the two one? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. So two people engaged in illicit sexual relationship, fornication, right, are joined physically. They're joined. And the quote, interestingly, comes all the way back from Genesis chapter 2 when God created Adam and Eve at the very beginning. In verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave, that's join, unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So this idea that two shall be one flesh, well, that's the prescription given in, mar- given in marriage. That's what we say when a couple stands up here and we do the wedding vows. That's what we say at a wedding. The two shall become one flesh. That is quoted in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, when a man joins himself to a harlot. You know what that means? That means that when God looks at the physical union of a man and a woman, that's a marriage. That's a marriage. In God's sight it is, because it's flesh joining flesh. Which, by the way, is the reason why adultery or fornication is biblical grounds for divorce. Because what you have is flesh joined flesh, and then flesh left that flesh, to go join itself with, a, with another flesh. And that severing of the, the first relationship, the marriage relationship, takes place when you physically join yourself to someone else. So God says, well, in that case, you don't have to, but you can get a divorce. It's not sin. You can do it. And that's what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 5. And he said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. He's going back and quoting Genesis 2. And they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So you make your vows, you make your commitment, and you live your married life in a healthy way, and you are joined unto your spouse. Well, don't let man put asunder, divide that which you have joined in the sight of the Lord. Go down a few verses to verse number 9. Jesus continues, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, 
doth commit adultery. Now we're going to get into all kind of details in chapter number 7. We're going to clear off a space and we're going to take at least six Sundays to go through chapter number 7 on marriage, divorce, remarriage. We have time to, to get into that starting next week. But for now, at least I want you to see that Jesus says, in other words, don't break the marriage under any circumstance. Oh, wait, wait, except for fornication. Because flesh joining flesh is marriage, flesh leaving flesh, well, that is the divorce. That is the putting away. But let me just tell you something, because you, you need to get this. There is more. There is even more than just the physical connection. Because the act of fornication, it joins your soul. It doesn't just, it joins your body, but it doesn't just join your body. It goes into your soul. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 34, there's a story. It says in verse 1, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah uh, and Jacob, right, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. He raped her. And notice verse 3. And his, Shechem's, soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. You see, you can't excuse this physical, animalistic instinct and just think you're the same as the animals. No, because this physical union is not just physical, it's also spiritual. It goes to your soul. In fact, Proverbs uh, chapter 6, I didn't have this in your notes, but I added it. Listen to this, Proverbs 6.32. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. His own soul. Therefore, this is in your notes, the physical joining of flesh is also spiritual. The physical joining of flesh is also spiritual. That level of intimate joining is never just physical. When you join yourself, when you commit fornication, you leave a part of your soul with that other person. That's why everybody should protect their virginity until marriage. The more partners that a person has had before marriage, the less of their soul that is left to share with their spouse. And some people are running on an empty bank account. So that is a very important application. It goes, go back to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And this is a small s spirit. This is the human spirit. This is your spiritual interaction. So let me just work this out for you really quickly. This will help you if you've never really thought about it. You interact with the physical world through your body. That's why you need it. You interact with the emotional world through your soul, but you interact with God through your spirit. You need to understand that. It is not your soul that interacts with God. It is your spirit that interacts with God, and a lost man has a dead spirit, Ephesians chapter 2. 
and he quickened you. He brought you to life when you received Jesus Christ. And his Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, comes in and indwells your now made alive, born again, human spirit. And now you have a connection with God through the Spirit and you can commune with him. Your body is your connection and interaction with the physical elements of this world. And your soul is the real you in the middle that gets the emotional backdrop story that goes with any physical act. But yet the soul is the decision maker in the middle. The flesh is pulling you to do what's evil and the spirit is always pulling you to do what's right. And well, you're in the middle. You get to choose every single day, every minute of your life. So you're joined to Christ in the spirit And the Bible uses the exact same language as it does with a physical marriage for married couples. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 5, right? So Ephesians 5 is that passage we often quote at weddings about husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands and, and all the different ways that that plays out. And it says in verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Going back to Genesis, right? And so this is the culmination of the whole man, woman, husband, wife story in Ephesians 5. But verse 32 really tells you what he's talking about. Once he's done, he's like, hey, wait a minute. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So the church is not just the body of Christ. The church is now the bride of Christ. And so it makes perfect sense when we take into consideration all of this joining that's going on. So when you get saved, when you surrender your will to the will of God when you confess your sins and ask Christ to come and to save you of your sins, your spirit joins God's spirit. And you are one spirit now. But you're also members, your members are members of his body because you are the body of Christ also. So you know what that means? That means that the spiritual joining of Christ is also physical. The, spiritual, the physical joining of the flesh is also spiritual. The spiritual joining of Christ, well, that's also physical. I mean, God is amazing. It all matters. Go back to verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? Think about that for a minute. Hey, Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You know what that means? That means that he goes with you everywhere you go. He sees everything you see. He's a part of everything you say, everything that you participate in. The Holy Spirit is there with you. Where you go, Jesus goes. What you do, Jesus does. What you say, Jesus says. What you look at or listen to, Jesus looks at and listens to. Think about that for a minute. Because a Christian who has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in his or her physical body goes ahead and joins him or herself to somebody else. He's requiring Jesus do that. He's requiring Jesus do that. And yeah, it's written in such a polite way in 17th century English. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. (laughs) so as a result we get verse 18 very clear right i didn't i don't need to make a whole sermon on this flee fornication flee flee fornication that's what it says uh sometimes we can learn a lot about what it doesn't say right 
What doesn't it say? Uh, it doesn't say fight it. Uh, you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say pray about it. It doesn't say pray about it. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say try really, really hard to do better and not do it. Run for the hills. You feel and see that temptation coming on, turn heel and run like the devil. Get out of Dodge. That's what he's saying. Listen, Christian, with all due respect, ain't none of us strong enough to fight that battle. You're not going to win. You play with that fire, you're going to get burned. You're not strong enough, and God knows you're not strong enough. He just says, run, run, flee. That's what he says. Paul repeats it to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts. Run. Keep your distance. You familiar with the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39? His brothers sell him into slavery. He ultimately lands in the house of a man named Potiphar. And he's proven himself, and, and he's, he's got responsibility in Potiphar's house. In fact, Potiphar trusts him with everything that's going on. In fact, only his wife, you know, was closer to Potiphar than Joseph was. And Joseph took care of all of his affairs, and he was frequently in the house taking care of his business while Potiphar was out, and his wife was there, and she was an evil woman. And she continually enticed Joseph to come and to lay with her, right? And in verse number 12 of Genesis 39, we see Joseph, the greatest picture and type of the Lord Jesus in all the Bible, has the perfect response to this temptation. It says in verse, Joseph keeps saying, no, 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 I couldn't possibly do this and sin against God and sin against my master, your husband, and this is wrong, and he, she, he keeps saying no. And in verse 12, finally, she's, I mean, she's evil. She caught him by his garment. She grabbed him and said, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Keep the shirt. I'm gone. <laughs> Do that. That's the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 6.18. Why? Well, your body wasn't designed for that purpose. That's why. Why? Because... God forbid you would allow Jesus Christ to be a part of that kind of union. Why? Because verse 18 goes on and says, anybody that commits fornication sins against his own body. Sins against his own body. You know how it works. If you sin against somebody, you hurt them. You hurt them. If you sin against the Lord, you hurt the Lord. If you sin against your brother or sister or whoever, you hurt that person. You sin against your own body, you hurt your own body. That's what you do. That's what he's trying to communicate to you. You know what that means? That means that you can expect physical consequences to sexual sin. You can expect it. I get it. You can never say 100% of the time things always play out however they play out, but there are consequences. Don't kid yourself. 
You can go back to Romans chapter 1 and the list of the continual downflow of all of the sin as people are given over to their lusts and desires. In Romans 1 and verse 26, it starts off by saying, For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. And then he begins to describe perverse sexual sin. And in verse 27, Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of women, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly. I want you to notice the last part of this and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat, or suitable, or appropriate. In other words, you can expect some level of physical consequence when you commit sin against your own body. You can commit other sins, and they'll affect other people in other ways. But this sin also affects other people. It also affects the Lord, but it also affects your own body. That's what it does. And that's what you have to watch out for. That's what he's trying to help you to understand. So any sexual sin, yes, Romans talks about homosexual, heterosexual, I don't care. Any sexual sin, right, doesn't matter what it is, runs the risk of, well, STDs, AIDS, whatever the case might be, you run the risk. You say, well, a lot of people don't get, okay, that's fine. Uh, how about uh, emotional problems that are acquired? How about all the guilt, anxiety, depression that manifest themselves, oh, with physical pain, right? Loss of sleep, loss of appetite, and it gets worse and worse and worse. It's all clinically diagnosed now, and it's all made to you know, sound very clean and sanctified and, and simply medical. You know what? Listen, I'm not trying to say, trust me, I, ha I don't know enough to possibly say, I would never say, that all issues of anxiety and depression you know, are just a result of sin. There certainly can be chemical imbalances, and your medication may be exactly what you need. But certainly, certainly some people are diagnosed with a problem that just comes from sin. It just comes from sin, right? So Galatians 6, 7, still in the Bible, y'all, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So let me ask you a question. If you were to sin against the Lord, what do you do? What are you supposed to do, Christian? Well, the Bible says, stop it. Stop doing that and make it right. Tell him you're sorry, but don't just tell him you're sorry. Stop it. Uh, if you sin against another person, what are you supposed to do, Christian? Stop it. <laughs> Repent. Make it right. Say you're sorry. Do whatever you got to do, but absolutely change your behavior to never do it again. Oh, now we're going to talk about sinning against our own bodies. What are you supposed to do, Christian? Stop it. Stop it. Getting the hang of this now. I still have like two more questions. <laughs> Stop it. And make it right. And make it right. You know, like I said, here's the interesting thing about this one. 
Because the sin against your body, it's actually against the Lord and against others and against your body. So it's the worst. It's the worst. We've got to go to point number three. The last two verses. We'll call it the possession of your body. The possession of your body. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So it's in you. The indwelling Christ. Jesus Christ lives in you through the person of the Holy Spirit that has come to take up residence in your mortal body. We have this treasure of the Holy Spirit in earthen vessels, right? Because our body came from the dust of the earth with Adam, right? And so we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. It's a gift of God. We have it from God. It's the earnest of our salvation until the redemption of the purchased possession. But the thing I want to emphasize to you, hopefully you understand that already. The thing I want you to get in the context of today's lesson is that last part. Hear it. And ye are not your own. Ye are not your own. You are bought with a price. You have been purchased. Have you ever bought something, paid the money, the check was cashed, it's in the other guy's account? And for whatever reason, you never have taken possession of that item. Never happened? You ever order something on Amazon and you paid for it and for whatever reason, you know, the delivery was delayed and then they're out of stock and it's just going on and on. And so you paid the money, but you never got the stuff. So, consumer, Western American consumer, what are you going to do when that happens? Well, I want my money back. Forget this deal. I'm out. I can't believe that I paid for something and I didn't get it. I'm out of this deal, man. Aren't you glad God doesn't operate like that? I mean, really. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't say, uh-uh, I'm tapping out. You guys, you went back on your offer. You said you were going to give me your life, and now you took it back for yourselves. I haven't really taken full possession of you, sir. Boy, thank the Lord. He still gives us time. But the standard is the standard. Ye are not your own. You've been bought with a price. That means, last thing in your notes, if you are saved, it's because you sold your soul. That's what you did. Now, you might think that that has a negative connotation. Let me assure you, if you did that, it's the greatest thing you've ever done in your life. You couldn't possibly get a better deal. But God wants you to remember that. You're bought with a price. The Bible says you're crucified with Christ. The Bible says that you're dead. It says that Christ lives in you now. He bought and paid for you with his blood. He alone has the rights to ownership of your bodies and your lives. Only Jesus has the rights to that. God's will, therefore, is already set. It's written down for you. Just do that. You know what that means, Christian? 
If you are saved, if you made that deal with the Lord, if you surrendered everything, you gave him all of your life so that you could receive all of his. Greatest thing ever. You know what that means? When you go home today, when you go to work tomorrow, when you deal with the things you deal with the next day after that, and you're wondering, I wonder what I should do. That decision-making process should never, ever, ever include your opinion. It should never include your opinion. You have no opinion. You've made your deal already. Ye are not your own. You are bought with a price. That's what happened. So the owner's manual has already spoken about what you are to do in all the various situations that you might find yourself. So as the purchase possession that you are, you will function best when you function according to the owner's manual. That's all you got to do. You know what that means? That as you're going through, and by the way, life has tons of real challenges. Life has a lot of actual, real, difficult decisions. There is no verse in black and white that says, take this job or take that job. I get it. But you know what? We wrestle and struggle with a whole lot of decisions that we don't need to be wasting time worrying about, you know? If we would just once and for all decide whatever the Lord says, that's what I'm doing. Because I'm dead and my life is hid with Christ and God. I don't get a vote. I don't get an opinion. He doesn't need to consult me. My only response for the rest of my life is only to be, yes, sir. Yes, sir which is why Bible study is so important, so that you know what the sir says. <laughs> it's so important. You need to have good doctrine. Sound doctrine always lives to a holy life, always. Bad doctrine always leads to sin, always. You have to have it. It's critically important. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, and he did, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live, that's us, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That's God's will for you. You're not allowed the choice to live for yourself anymore. If you want, that's what you had before you were saved. How'd that work out for you? No, you live for the Lord. You live for the Lord. Colossians 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, if you are really saved, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, notice who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life, He's not first place in your life. That's not good enough. He's first and second and third and last. He's everything. You have nothing. Still the greatest deal ever. Still the greatest deal ever. I'm just telling you, this is the way the Lord sees it. This is the plan he has. This is why your body and your life and your decisions matter. And once you make the final executive choice, and by the way, it really is that easy. Once and for all, just flip that switch in your mind and say, I'm done. 
I'm done being a part of the executive decision team. I will just do whatever the Lord says. Tomorrow, when things come up, just do whatever the Lord says. The day after that, when it, something comes up, it really makes it easy. I mean, it just simplifies things. It really does. And if you think, well, man, I mean, what kind of life is that? It's a life full of joy. That's what it is. It's a life free from guilt. That's what it is. It's a life that brings rewards in eternity. That's what it is. Romans 10, verse number 9. Here's, you know, we read this when we want to lead people to the Lord in salvation. Please notice the words. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the genie in a bottle, Jesus. No, of course not. The Lord, Jesus. When you call upon the name of Jesus Christ, you're calling upon him as the Lord of all. He's the boss. He's the decision maker. Henceforth and forever moving forward, when you make that decision, it means you allow him and his express written will be the guide for your life. And as you continue to play your little Christian game and show up in church and act like you're something, when the truth of the matter is, there's not a desire, and I know most of you it's probably not the case, but there might be somebody, I don't know. But the desire in that person's heart is, has nothing to do with fulfilling the will of the Lord and glorifying Him in His body and His spirit, which are the possession of God. Well, good luck at the end of your life. If that's how you finish out this race on this earth, whew, it's risky. It's risky. Did you ever really get saved? I don't know. So he says, glorify God. Use your physical resources of your body for God's glory. And glorify Him in your spirit. So use that spiritual connection to God for His glory. Because they're His possession. They are God's. That's what it is. So the body has kind of been the focus today. Your body is a gift. You have been given a gift. And that gift is not given to you to control you. That gift is given to you even with the lusts that it has so that you can serve God. That's why it's given to you. And I don't know where you're at in your personal life. I don't know what struggles you've had. I don't know what the challenges have been for each and every one of you. I don't need to know. But the Lord has spoken through His Word and we're going to have a time of decision here in a second. And as we're praying, I invite each and every one of you to consider, not your neighbor, not somebody sitting across the room, not somebody that you wish showed up today. Draw a little circle in your mind's eye around your feet and pray for the person whose feet are in that circle. And consider what God is saying to you. And should you find that the Lord is saying to you that there's a problem, would you be willing to do what he asks you to do? You're bought with a price. You're not your own. Just say, yes, sir. Confess the sin against the Lord. Confess the sin against others. Confess the sin against your body. Stop them and make it right. Make it right today. God would be pleased if you would do that. Let's pray.